Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, it is CityCast's Spy Week, which is presented by the International Spy Museum. This means we are doing a week's worth of episodes about secret agents and covert goings-on right here in DC. We'll kick it off today with a battlefield tour of sorts, the best spy stories in the district's long secret history. And at the end of the episode, there's a short bonus interview that has nothing to do with espionage. There's been a shakeup in the city government, and we are talking to a reporter who's been covering the fracas. Today is Monday, May 8th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. So Bob Wallace, you literally wrote the book on spy sites and locations in DC. When people think of spies, we think of the Cold War, but it actually dates back to the beginning of this city's status as the national capital. What's your best, most interesting spy story from Washington? One spy site in Washington that maybe has more espionage activity that we know about that's occurred there than any others, it would be the Mayflower Hotel on Connecticut Avenue. There are some crazy stories about that in, in your book. Tell us about it. Well, the Mayflower, built in 1925, became uh, initially a place where the uh, Japanese uh, naval attache would throw parties in the 1930s and meet a variety of people uh, whom uh, he cultivated, uh, both for information as well as for potential uh, spies for the Japanese and that run up uh, to the Second Second World War. So we start in, we see a spy site there in the mid-1930s, and then we go to 1942. The uh, Germans decided to run sabotage operations in the United States, and they sent two teams to the United States, but uh, George Dash got cold feet, shall we say. And he checked into the Mayflower Hotel, a room that, Michael, you can check into that very same room at the Mayflower Hotel today. And uh, he called the FBI from there and said, hey, look, I'm a German saboteur, and uh, I'd like to talk to you. The FBI in Washington was willing to listen to his story. And uh, based on that, the FBI was able to wrap up the two uh, German saboteur teams before they could do any damage. Now we also have a Russian spy story. Also in the Mayflower. Why didn't they just go to the Motel 6? I mean, at this point, that place is cursed for spies. Well, the reason uh, one Aldrich James is in the 1980s is a mid-level CIA officer who has access and is responsible for working uh, Soviet operations at CIA. 
but Alder James had some money problems, some other issues, and uh, he decided he was going to volunteer his services. Alder James went to the Mayflower because it's only a block away from what was then the Soviet embassy. So with no meeting, why uh, Alder James just uh, went over to the Soviet embassy and uh, was able to uh, volunteer uh, tragically for American intelligence and for as many as a dozen of our spies then in in the Soviet Union. They were subsequently executed by Alder James' treachery. Another place people walk by a lot is Lafayette Square, which, you know, it given that it's prime location right opposite the White House, if I were a spy, I might pick one of the many quieter parks in D.C. But it, apparently it's got a deep espionage history, too. What are some of the plots that went down there? Lafayette Square, a fascinating, fascinating location. I stand in Lafayette Square and I say, I'm right at the epicenter of spying in America. If you look around Lafayette Square, there are at least a, a half a dozen different places where spy activity occurred. Perhaps the earliest was Dolly Madison, who I say was the first intelligence officer who did aerial surveillance for the United States. When she stood on the roof of the White House during the War of 1812, as she saw the British troops moving into Washington from that high observation point. So Dolly Madison represents a particular type of spy. Abraham Lincoln moved into the White House in, in 1861. He was uh, obviously a target. A significant operation was launched by a very effective Confederate scout by the name of Thomas Conrad. Thomas Conrad disguised himself as a clergyman, and he hung around Lafayette Square surveilling President Lincoln, who would uh, leave the White House most evenings and go north up the street for uh, uh, three quarters of a mile uh, where there was a Union hospital, and he visited wounded troops in the American hospital. Conrad's idea was to kidnap uh, President Lincoln, and then uh, having the kidnapped president, that would be something the Confederates could trade for a resolution to the war. A plot that was pretty pretty good, except it was foiled when President Lincoln started to travel with some security. That was unexpected by Conrad, and ultimately learned that another of the Confederate spies by the name of Mosby was also thinking about or developing a plot to kidnap Lincoln, and Lincoln's security forces got a tip that Mosby was planning this kidnap plot. So they added security. It foiled two plots, both the Mosby plot and the Conrad plot. So it's interesting. We think of so many of us idea of cloak and dagger spy stuff is set in the Cold War or World War II, James Bond movies. But this period of the Civil War, speak the same language from the same culture. All they got to do is row across a river. There's no elaborately smuggling someone in so they get the accent right when they're 16 years old. And the city must have been an absolute snake pit. The city had dozens and dozens of spies. Probably we only know about a small fraction of them. When was the last time you went to the theater? 
Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. Is there a most surprising site where spy stuff went down? If there is a surprise site, it probably uh, would be the uh, mailbox in Georgetown where, uh, where Aldrich Ames would leave a signal for the dead drops uh, that he was filling or there are the communications that he would have with his Soviet handlers. This would have been in the late 80s and the early 90s, just a post office box on 35th in Georgetown. Alder James primarily used chalk to make a mark on that street corner mailbox. Because of its location, a Soviet intelligence officer could drive just down the street and see whether or not there was a mark on the box to indicate a, either a dead drop had been filled or one had been emptied. But it's surprising because of the number of intelligence officers and over the decades, the number of spies who have located themselves in Georgetown. Georgetown is just crawling with spies and spy sites. Well, it's a pleasant neighborhood. I mean, if you're here on some on, on a foreign government's nickel and they're going to put you to whatever house you say is the right, I mean, it's pretty nice place well, to live. Well, right? it's a beautiful place to live. The <laughs> British certainly made use of those locations during the Second World War. Kim Philby had a house in uh, Georgetown. Uh, Roald Dahl, a British uh, intelligence officer yeah. of the Second World War, who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, had a residence there. So it's well known. Many of the CIA officers, uh, senior officers, particularly in the uh, late 40s and the early 50s, had homes in Georgia. Right, so it was an elite neighborhood at a time when these organizations drew in people from a lot of elite backgrounds. Uh, yeah, they sure did. And then, probably not surprisingly, because they were living there. Well, one thing you can say about spies is that a lot of times, I don't want to use the word lazy, but they will do their operations close to home if possible. So places like the old Georgetown Pharmacy was a location during the during that time, during the 1950s. Wait, I have a, so I have a question for you. You've been, you've done all this research. You have walked the streets of Washington to show people uh, sites. Let's say you were a secret agent of some sort and you were trying to set up a place for like a secret rendezvous or something. You know Washington pretty well now. Where would you do it? I probably wouldn't do it in Washington. But, you know, what's interesting on, in terms of the world of intelligence, one of the things that the uh, Russians, the Soviets, uh, realities that they had to face, and which our officers had to face in Moscow as well, is that there was a circumscribed radius in which we could move. We were allowed to travel. And I think it was 25 miles during the Cold War for the Russians. Right, so the Russians Washington, couldn't go beyond Gaithersburg or something. Unless they had explicit permission 
for an official reason from the uh, U.S. State Department. So you become kind of constrained there, and the constraints usually will lead you to open areas, parks and bridges. Generally, the location where spies like to conduct their operations. And they like parks and bridges, parks because the the privacy and uh, the mobility, the ability to uh, move to a lot of different areas in parks to possibly meet somebody or conduct an operation. Bridges because they are very convenient place. Underneath a bridge is a really a good place to leave a package for a dead drop. And Robert Hansen, the FBI agent who was a spy for the Soviets, used dead drops. Michael Semenko, who was one of the Russian illegals that was arrested in 2010, used bridges in the Washington area, again, to leave his drop or to retrieve a drop. So we, I think in, in spy sites, we have six or eight bridges that we have located where spies have conducted their operations. Do you have a favorite? No. There's kind of a cool one up in uh, Maryland uh, on one of the uh, lesser routes in Maryland. It looked like a pretty interesting site. It also looked like a nice stream to fish in. It could give you a good cover. It is a cover that has been used all over the world by spies. Bob, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You are very welcome. Happy to have the conversation, Michael. We're going to have special spy-related content like this all week long for you. Plus, Spy Museum tips. Be our sponsor. Today's hack of the day is how to get there. The museum's address is 700 L'Enfant Plaza Southwest, but it is located on Upper 10th Street. Note that there is a Lower 10th Street where you can access an underground parking garage. If your Uber or Lyft tries to drop you on Lower 10th, ask them to drive up the ramp to drop you in front of the museum. And before you go, we've got one big news update for you today. If you have been listening to CityCast DC for a while, you know that the DC Housing Authority and its director, Brenda Donald, have been under fire for a bunch of different issues. They've been overpaying landlords, they've been failing to adequately maintain public housing units, they've received huge bonuses despite all that. Well, late last week, Brenda Donald resigned. And we've got the Washington Post's Steve Thompson, who's broken a bunch of stories about the agency, here to tell us why. All right, so Steve, uh, Brenda Donald has been facing the heat for months now. Why did she now decide to leave? What was the final straw? We don't know. Um, it, it was unclear. She made the announcement, uh, or the agency made the announcement at about 10.15 the other night, p.m., and it's a little unclear. In a LinkedIn post on, on her LinkedIn account yesterday, she I think she just turned 68 last month, and she said that it was her birthday gift to herself to, to step down. She was looking for a Steve Thompson free 69th year. Maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So they're looking for a new boss. It is somewhat troubled agency right now. How does uh, her departure affect the ability to get back on track? Well, it probably depends on who you ask. The mayor has been a staunch supporter of her and has been uh, praised her performance. And if you ask somebody with that point of view, then they're probably sorry to see her go. And and uh, 
but they're hoping they can get somebody that could fill her shoes. There are a lot of critics, uh, maybe chief among them are the legal aid advocates who advocate for public housing residents. And I think if you asked any of those, uh, they might say, we just hope they get somebody that can do this job the next time around because they, this agency's been in the ditch for a long, long time. And they were hoping that uh, Brenda Donald might fix that. Donald says that she has put the agency back on track, but I think these critics are skeptical of that. So real quick, um, what are the agenda items for fixing this uh, agency? Well, HUD came out uh, with a report last fall that had something like 82 findings of deficiencies. Uh, and it said that basically the, the agency was failing to provide decent, safe, sanitary housing for its residents. And, you know, that that was the underlying finding uh, of all of these deficiencies. But there's just a wide range of stuff that they need to fix uh, from, you know, deteriorating conditions in their public housing uh, properties to how they deal with their, their vouchers and, and how they pay for the vouchers and how they pay landlords for them. Uh, there's just all sorts of stuff that HUD wants to see them get fixed. And uh, so uh, the to-do list is very long. And, uh, you know, the deadline for all that is the end of this month. It doesn't seem reasonable to think that they're going to fix all that stuff by the end of this month. And we'll have to see whether HUD thinks the progress that they've made is is sufficient, whether it's at least on track. Steve, thank you so much for the update. Thanks for having me. We will be covering this more in the coming months. Call or text us with your questions. We're at 202-642-2654. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for another Spy Week episode. Did you know that there are an estimated 10,000 spies in the city? That means you probably know one. Tomorrow, we've got a former CIA agent to help you spot spies around you. If you enjoyed the show, why not leave the details in your favorite dead drop and subscribe to our morning newsletter? We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. I did spend a career in the government, so as you can see, I got got off on a real long tangent rather than just answering your question. <laughs>